I want to talk about love. And I want to talk about love because I think we have a diluted or we have a watery or we have a, um, a perverted view of what love really is. And I think we have a perverted view or a diluted view of love because of our culture. Our culture gives us views of what love is supposed to be like, right? It's 50 shades of weird or whatever. And then it's, it's twilight or it's whatever it is, right? It's all these different views of what love is supposed to be. It's about these, these attractions and this desire and all this type of stuff. And attraction and desire can go away. So love has got to be more than that. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today. But before we, uh, we journey in that uh, today, will you guys pray with me? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for today. And I'm just so humbled by the experiences and opportunities you let me have. And so, Father, I just ask, Lord God, as we journey into this topic today, as we, as we journey into your word today, you should be present and let us just see you and, um, and know more about you and apply it to our lives. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, um, back in fourth grade, many years ago, um, I was super into a, a thing called a go-ped. And if you don't know what a go-ped is, it's a gas scooter that has a little gas engine on it, propel you going like 19, 20 miles per hour. And I was super about this thing. I don't know why, looking back, that my dad, who was also a police officer, decided that he was going to give me a gas scooter. But anyways, um, and so every Christmas or whatever it was, I would mow lawns, I would wash cars, I would try to accrue and save up money to invest back into this go-ped to make it faster or whatever it was, or prettier or whatever. And um, every like three or four months, um, I got like eight of my friends to get go-peds as well. We would race these things. Whoever had the fastest go-ped would win a bunch of money, and you're a bunch of money. A bunch of money is like $40 when you're in fifth grade, right? That's a lot of Snickers. And so I'm super amped on it, and um, I saved up like a bunch of money, like $40 or whatever it was, and eight of my friends saved about the same. And we put it into someone's hat, and, uh, and, and we raced down this one street. And whoever had the fastest go-ped, like I said, got all the money. So I remember my buddy Philip. Um, we were in the finals, and um, I think it was like $180 or something like that, whoever, whoever won. And so my buddy Philip goes on his go-ped, and he gets like a little ahead of me. And about this time, because I souped it up, these things went like 40 miles per hour, right? Which is like as fast as a car driving on like, like, like a main street, like Cerritos or whatever it is. And so I'm on this thing. I think I'm in, I'm in sixth grade at this moment, and, and, I'm, uh, and he gets ahead of me just a little bit, and the wind kicks up, and he didn't buckle his seatbelt. I'm sleeping, his, uh, his helmet, his seatbelt, that'd be a weird win. Uh, and so it flies off, lodges in my front wheel. And remember, we're going about 40 miles per hour at this time. So I get launched over the handlebars at 40 miles per hour. I hit the ground and I literally roll about like probably half the length of this room. So I'm like, what the frick, right? So I grab my go-ped and I drag it over to the side of the curb. And I'm like, am I alive, right? Like, I'm like, I'm like all the limbs are here, my head's still here, right? And I'm like, whew. And then I glance down. And I see that there's a bunch of blood coming down my pinky, dripping on the concrete. And I'm like, huh, that wasn't there before, right? And so I go, what is it? So I go to pull back my jacket, and I can't pull my jacket back. I'm like, what? And so I wasn't wearing a watch, so I was like, it couldn't be a watch or anything like that, right? And so I go to put my hand in there, and I'm like, what is that? It's like a twig. What is that? And so then I pull it back, and all of a sudden, boom, just Colgate white, just boom, my bone's sticking right out. And I was like, <gasps> I'm like, so I lose it, right? Sixth graders, like, I'm a hypochondriac. I'm freaking out. I'm like, here, here it is. I die, I die uh, this day in sixth grade, right? They're going to have to amputate my arm. It's my favorite arm. I'm bummed out, right? Like, <laughs> this is a terrible situation, right? And so my friends are laughing because they just saw me eat it, which is a kind of a, when I mean, you epic fails, I could spend hours watching those online. But anyways, so I roll, I, whatever, right? My friends are cracking up. They come over to me, they're like, dude, that was crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> Right, they're like, dude, like, what? And I'm like, dude, I'm like showing him my guys, like, oh my gosh. So they call my dad, and my dad, like, literally, like, leaves work and drives and picks me up, picks me up, like, cradles me, throws me in the car, and we're off to the hospital. So when we get to the hospital, we meet my mom there, and I and I get run, I, I we run into the ER, and I'm like, oh. my dad's like carrying me, and my arms like doing this weird thing, uh, and my arm was kind of crazy. I mean, it was like four inches shorter, and it just had this big white bone, right, sticking right out of it. So I get to the ER, and I'm like. 
I don't know how they fix this, right? Like they can't fix this. I'm gonna be like a robot or something. I don't know, I don't know how they're gonna fix this. And so finally they get me into a doctor and the doctor's like, okay, here's what we gotta do. Um, we don't actually have like the, like the necessary tools and equipment or specialty to know how to do this. So it's Friday at four o'clock. So you have to wait literally till Monday to get this fixed. But we'll, we'll give you guys some medication. I'm like, what is medication? Like, give it to me, give me all of it, right? So they hooked me up to like, like something, some opiate. And I was like, just on a cloud for the next, I was literally high from Saturday till Monday. And so <laughs> Monday, uh, both my parents um, don't go to uh, work and, and we meet the specialist. And so we, uh, we drive up to the specialist, it was like a Newport or whatever it was. And um, I have no idea, I'm, you know, for 72 hours, I'm high as a kite. I'm just chilling, watching Netflix or whatever. And so I have no idea what is, what, what's, how you fix this solution. I, you know, I, I wake up and it's, I don't know, I have no idea. And my parents didn't say anything, although they knew how they fixed it. So we go to the specialist, I lay down on a bed, and, and have you guys ever seen those like Chinese torture things where you put your finger in and you get super angry because you can't get your fingers out? You know what I'm saying, right? So uh, they had like one of those things, but like a five-fingered one, like chilling off the side of the bed. And so I lay down and a uh, doctor comes in, hi, uh, Mr. Sinfrani. Uh, I'm like, I'm in sixth grade. Uh, and, and he's like, so here's what we got to do. We gotta, I got I to reset your bone. I'm like, dad, what? What do you mean he's got to reset my bone? He's like, yeah, so like we have to re-break your arm. And I was like, huh? <laughs> I was like, I looked, I said, dad, did you bring the drugs? No, I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need some right now. Um, and so they put my finger like in, in this, and I handed one of those things, right? And the guy kind of comes close to me and he's like, are you ready for this? And I was like, bro, you're about to get popped in the face. And I'm like, <laughs> like no, I'm not ready for this. And he goes, here's what I got to do. And he's like, I got to grab your arm. And then I grab right here. And on the count of three, and he goes, and it starts just yanking on my arm and sets it. I'm like, I'm just like a Casper White at this moment, right? They rebroke my arm. And I'm just like, and I saw my bone just, just go back and back into my arm. And so I'm like, that's the most painful situation I've been in my life, right? This is a terrible situation. So finally, they, they, they give me drugs, which was great. And then they wrap my arm back up and they put me in a cast and they send me on my way. Now that, that following week was literally, actually the following month was like the best month of my life. Although I had a cast up to here, which kind of sucked because you have like an itch over here. It's like the worst situation in your life. But because my parents would do anything for me, right? I'm like, dad, you know what I really want for lunch today? Mm, lobster. <laughs> He's like, okay. Uh, you like try to find lobster or whatever it was. Oh, flame and yawn sounds good for breakfast. I need that by six in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and so I was making my, my parents do all these absurd requests, just random things like that. You know, I need a massage for like an hour. He's like, okay. Uh, and so they do me all these things, right? And, and, and the reason I kind of, I shared that story with you is because you can obviously see that like my parents cared for me, right? And, and I think my parents were good parents and, and, uh, and I think they went out of their way a lot to care for me, to love me. And you got to think about it. Love is a really interesting thing, right? Because I can love my wife, which I do, and I can love Oreos, which I also do, right? And, and, and you get it, but you get the difference, but like it's, all, it's the same word, right? Like you get the idea, but in the English diction or the English language, there's only one word to really kind of describe, describe that type of commitment or that type of sacrifice that love really requires. And in some ways, I think the English language has actually done us a disservice as we talk about the type of love that God bestows upon mankind because it doesn't provide us, I think, with the proper framework to really understand the statement. In, in the Greek language, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek New Testament, there's four words that describe love. The first is phileo. And phileo is the type of love for a friendship, your best friend or whatever it is. Um, the other one is storgy. And this is the love that a member that you have for a family, your brother, your sister, your pet, your fish, whatever, right? Something like that. And eros is this passionate, romantic type of love, right? It's this love that's like a desire. It's in a deep attraction. And then the, it's essentially the love that makes you say, I love you. And then the fourth type of love is this unconditional type of love. And this is the love that God bestows upon mankind, you and I. And in this Greek 
kind of verb, it, it's to demonstrate your love towards. So it's unconditional in nature and it's also in action. And tonight what I really hope to do is to give us a new perspective on God's love. Like I said earlier, I think we sometimes just have such a diluted, a, a perverted view of what God's love really is for you and I. And so today I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. The overarching verse that I kind of want to use as our umbrella um, or our lens or covering um, to take us kind of through our Old Testament chronicle today is a pretty famous verse. And you've been around church, if you've grown up in church or you've watched football and seen Tim Tebow, you've probably seen this verse, John 3.16, right? And it's for, it's for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So, so love, right? For God's so love, so love is outlandish, right? Love is an, is an interesting thing. Sometimes it can make us do just idiotic or stupid things, but love is illogical. It's, it's kind of, and so love is outlandish. It's, it's unusual. You can't add it up. It's, it's not mathematical. And you know what's really thought-provoking, at least for me, is that love is kind of the, the, the theme of our lives. It's the, lives. it's the main reason that you and I exist. We are the objects of our creator's love. And God is a relationally loving being, has made that same contingency within our hearts. And so there's really two reasons that you and I exist. The first is this, we exist to love God and others. And the second is, we exist to be loved by God and to be loved by others. And most importantly, this is an imperative. It's really important that we understand this next idea, because if we don't, we will live a life of dissatisfaction. We'll we'll live a life uh, zapped from joy and happiness. See, dissatisfaction in life is near the roots of all kinds of evil, or at least all kinds of sin. See, why do people cheat? Why do people abuse drugs and alcohol, or watch pornography when they're married, or even commit suicide? See, all of these things and more happen because people haven't found contentment. People haven't found happiness or joy or satisfaction. And at the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst. And this is, this, is a, this is a premise that we're going to talk about today. At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy us. Because ultimately, our heart was created outside of it by a God who exists outside of it. And it's only in a relationship with Christ do I think the fundamental needs of our heart arrest or are met. And that is because we are created to be in a relationship with our Creator, God. See, if you search for love and satisfaction outside of a relationship with Christ, I think the consequences in one's life are obvious. Because you will meet people who will go long and far searching for love through relationships, through sex, never knowing that the anchor their hearts really needs is right in front of them in Jesus. I think the truth is that we can be satisfied in a relationship with Christ because we can understand that we are loved not because of who we are or what we can do, but because of who Christ is. We can understand that we are loved because who God is. In his very nature, God is loving. And tonight, what I want to talk about is that concept that you and I are unconditionally loved by the creator of our universe. And I want to talk about this because I think, like I said, I think we have twisted views of this. And you may have twisted views because of a relationship, a boyfriend that treated you terribly, a girlfriend that treated you terribly, a parent that didn't love you in the way that a parent was supposed to love you. And therefore your view of God, the father, or God even being a man, at least the father, and and, and it, 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 it messes with your mind and you don't understand that God does care for you. And so I wanted to examine an Old Testament typology that has helped me really see that God really does love us, and he loves us in a way that I find to be just really undescribable. Now, a typology is a symbol, or it's a person or an event that is, uh, represents something else. And specifically, when it's biblical uh, typog- typologies, it is, it's called Christology. And a Christology is when a symbol, that person, or event represents Jesus. And the Old Testament is littered with them. They're full of them, of typologies, of Christologies, 
people or events um, or symbols that represent Jesus. And so there's two questions I want you to ask tonight. The two questions I want you to think and, and, and process tonight are this. Who am I in this story? As we journey into this story, the question I want you to ask is, who are you in this story? Who am I in this story? And the second is, who is God in this story? The first, who am I in this story? It's essential that you see who you are in this story. Because then you can get to see how truly great God is in this story. First question, who am I in the story? The second, who is God in the story? And so let me kind of paint the picture, set the scene of where we're going to be going tonight. So this all takes place about in the late 700 BCs, about 750 years before the birth of Christ. And so in this kind of time, Israel has broken up. And, 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 and this is right after the um, death of King Solomon. And this king divided, this kingdom completely divided. And so in the south, you have Judea and Jerusalem. And it was ruled by a man named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a godly man. In fact, in a large measure, he kept his people worshiping the one true God. But in the north, you had someone else. His name was Jeroboam. And this was called Israel. And they plunged into idolatry. They plunged themselves into, uh, it was the worst, it was, it was the worst they've ever been when it comes to morality. And this northern kingdom, ironically, in a weird way, kind of began to enjoy material prosperity unequaled since the days of Solomon. So they were, it was like, the, from their point of view, it was the best times, at least so it seemed from their own point of view. And however, they also had sunk, like I said a little bit earlier, to the lowest ebb of immorality and to idol worship. They worshiped a God named Baal. Remember, these are supposed to be the Israelites, the people that worship Yahweh or Elohim. That's the one God they're supposed to worship. Now they're worshiping this false God named Baal. And so it was also indeed the worst of times from God's point of view. And into this crazy kind of world and situation, 750 years before the birth of Christ, a man named Hosea, who was so full of God's illogical, unconditional type of love, was born. Now, Hosea was a prophet. And if you don't know much about a prophet or what they did in the Old Testament, they were chosen by God to do something incredible. Or something, um, uh, well, in this specific case, God assigns Hosea to be a speaker to Israel. And God is going to demonstrate his love to mankind through Hosea to this backsliding, adulterous nation. Now, every prophet was employed by God to do something interesting. They all had interesting jobs. Most often, uh, their jobs were always to be bearers of bad news. Have you been a bearer of bad news before? Years ago, I... Um, was speaking in junior high, and um, it was during Christmas. There was a bunch of kids here. We had a Christmas party. And during the Christmas party, I, uh, I got up on stage and was sharing um, of how I found out. Well, let me share the story with you. So one Christmas, <laughs> one Christmas morning, I decided, or one Christmas night, I guess, I decided I was going to, and I think I was four at this time, four or five, I was going to kidnap Santa. And I was legit. I had the bag. I had it all. And I was like, this is going down, right? So I'm going to kidnap him. It's going to, I'm going to hide him in my closet. It's going to be Christmas every morning for the rest of my life. This is it, right? I've reached the pinnacle of my life. This is it. And so um, I fall asleep under the Christmas tree one night. And as I'm under the Christmas tree, I have it all planned out. When he starts putting you know, presents under the tree, I'm going to grab his hand, put him in a bag, throw him in my closet. That was exactly how I thought it was going to go down, right? So around like, I don't know, 11 or 12 at night, I see this hand, this, this, this old fat white guy, put his hand in, in there. It was my dad. And he puts, his, he puts his hand in there. I grab his hand and I yank him. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you're not Santa? And then just as I said that while on stage a few years ago, this kid in the front row goes, your dad's Santa? And I was like, and the kid in the back goes, wait, Santa's not real? And I was like, and in, in the middle of my sermon, this kid just starts bawling. And I was like, I just ruined this kid's childhood. I was like, oh no, man. And that kid... I got the longest email from his parents that day, like, how dare you, you're not supposed I'm like, he's in sixth grade. He's probably getting thrown in the toilet. Like, for sure you need to let him by sixth grade know that Santa is not real. You're a bad parent. You don't love him. All right. 
So prophets had it pretty rough, right? Almost as rough as I did that day. And, <laughs> and so they had some interesting jobs, but I dare say that Hosea's job was the most interesting. God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, are you listening? Look at me, are you listening? He says, I want you to marry a prostitute. And, and he goes, huh? He goes, he goes, yeah, that's right. I want you to marry a prostitute. And he says, I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear you. You say, you say a prostitute? He goes, yeah, yeah, I want you to marry a prostitute. In fact, in Hosea chapter one, verse two, it says this. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty to unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he marries a prostitute. And what's her name? Well, you think it's gonna be something like, like Candy? It's not. <laughs> if your name is Candy, I'm sorry. <laughs> Someone stands up. I'm like, again, uh, her name's Gomer, which is kind of a bummer of a name if you're a prostitute. I thought she, she was bad. Now, for a while, things go okay, right? They have three kids, but God says he's going to name their, their kids. And so God chooses names that will serve as reminders of the broken relationship he is having currently with Israel. So they have a baby boy. His name is Jezreel. Jezreel is an interesting name. It means God will slaughter. <laughs> Can you imagine that being your baby boy's name? So in fact, in, this is... a. Uh, Jezreel is a site, is a location of one of Israel's greatest massacres. And so it's like literally the equivalent of like naming your firstborn son like Twin Tower or something. Like it's offensive as that, or like Hiroshima or Atom Bomb. Like it's literally that offensive, right? That, that, that they would name their kid this, right? And then the second, they have a baby girl. Her name is Lo Ruhama, and that is to be not loved, which is again, she's probably gonna turn out just like her mom. Uh, and then the last, they have another baby boy, and her name is Lo Ami, and that literally means not mine. Or in this situation, it means, I am not your God. So those are, the, God names the three kids, and those are the names. And so the Bible doesn't say when, but maybe four or five years into that, Hosea wakes up and finds Gomer not next to him. Wakes up in bed, and he's like, where's Gomer, right? So he's, he's waking up, maybe thinking she's in the kitchen making Cheerios for the kids. I don't know, but she wakes up, and it's like, Gomer. He's like going, he's like looking in the pantry, looking in the closet, you know, looking in the backyard. There's no Gomer. And so he waits for the, you know, a few hours and the kids probably wake up and they're like, hey, where's, where's mom? And he's like, I don't know. Like, do, do you know where mom's at? And like, no, no, no. Like, oh, well, yeah, maybe she went to the store. I, maybe she's like, eh, no, no, I, we have no idea where mom is. A day passes, a few days pass, a week passes, a month passes, a few months pass. And now Hosea is a single dad now with three kids because Gomer has abandoned them. Eventually, God comes to Hosea and says, Go and find her and marry her again. And he goes, oh, that'd be a great idea. I just don't know where she's at, God. Like, uh, I don't know where she's at. So yeah, I would love what's going on. Uh, I would love to find her. Do you know? You're like the all-seeing eye, right? Do you know where? And he goes, yeah, I, I know where she's at. And he goes, okay, where? And she goes, go where you first found her. And he's like, wait, I first found her. She was like prostituting herself out. Like, what do you mean? Like where I first found her. She was being abused by a pimp when I first, what, what do you mean you want me to go and find her where I first found her? And God goes, that's exactly, she's exactly where you found her before, doing the exact same thing. And he goes, all right, God, I'll, I'll find her. In fact, in Hosea 3, verse one says this, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. 
<laughs> sacred raisin cakes. Here's what that means. Um, like a cake, what's so bad about a cake? So that was a, like a cake that they would use in the festivals to worship Baal. And so God's saying, listen, like I made this contract, I made this covenant, I made this promise that I would be your God, that I would love you, I would bless you, I would be faithful to you. And you are abusing that. And you're going out and doing Israel or you're doing things outside, you're worshiping another God, a false God, a fake God that isn't even real. And I'm the one that has blessed you. I'm the one that has loved you. I'm the one that's taken care of you. So at this time, I, I, did, I did a little research uh, to find out what Israel believed love was. And at this kind of time, Israel had three main views, three primary philosophies on what love really was. The first was they believed love could be purchased. The love could be purchased that they entered kind of into a season in which they believed love was something that could be bought. In fact, at this time, um, not in, this, in, in the Jewish temple, but at the temple of Baal, they would have prostitute worship. And so in fact, you could literally buy, and then we'd call it love, for a night. The second is they believe love is about the pursuit of self-gratification, that love is about self. It's about, at the core of love, it's about your ego. It's about you. And then the third thing, they believed that love could be found in discovering with things, materialism. And I read this and thought, man, this sounds eerily similar to the world that you and I live in today. The perception that we have on love, I think, has been so twisted. That love can be purchased, that love can be bought. Love is about self and love is about things. And so God says, this is not love. This is not what I designed love to be. And so I will show the world what love really is. I will demonstrate to my people what love truly is. And so God says, go look where you first found her, Hosea. Now picture this with me. Hosea, a known man of God who during the day would probably be seen at the synagogue preaching. At night would be going to strip clubs and brothels outside begging people that were going in to find his wife. He has to go searching for his wife where no man of God should be, let alone the prophet of Israel. And you know what people would have probably asked? Hosea, you're a respected man. You're a godly man. How can a holy man of God be, with, be in love with such a person like her? And Hosea probably said, you know, I'm really glad you asked because I have an answer for you. How can such a holy God be in love with people like us? So Hosea has to go from brothel to brothel, from place to place to try and find his wife, the girl who's abandoned him because God has told him to go love her again. So finally, finally he finds Gomer. And she's on the selling block. She's back in the sex trade industry. And what most scholars believe is literally that Hosea walked in on an auction for men bidding for her. So he walks in on this auction and he says, that's my wife. So he goes over to what would be a modern day pimp and says, hey, that's, that's Gomer, that's, that's my wife. And the guy goes, I don't, I don't care who that is, this is the price. He goes, but, but no, no, this ring on my finger and the ring on, see that ring on her, that means, that means we're together, right? Like, like year, years ago, we, we made this covenant, this contract that we would be faithful to one another, that we would only love each other. And he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't care. This is, this is the price. As it happens, he ends up paying 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley. By the way, this is the price of a slave during that time. So essentially, he is buying her out of slavery and into freedom. And he does all of this to buy his wife, who was already his. I think we'd have to be poetically dim not to see Jesus in this story. God is married to the person who has entered into a relationship with him, yet continually makes him the least of their priorities. To the person who keeps choosing other things, to the person who keeps messing up, 
to the person who seems unlovable. That is who God is married to. Here is the price God paid since that moment. 750 years from this moment, that's this moment in history, he sent his son to die on a torture tool to buy back what was already his. Friends, we are created in God's image, which means that we are already his. Now, earlier, I gave you the meanings of and the significance of the kids' names. Let me quickly give you the meanings of their names. Hosea means salvation. So who's Hosea in the story? Jesus is. Gomer means completion. Who's Gomer in the story? You and me. The meaning of the story can be summed up in this. Jesus is our Hosea, meaning salvation. Jesus is our salvation. And when you find him, nothing needs to be added to your life because you are complete. See, when you meet Jesus, the holes of your heart become full because the desires of your heart are met because they were created by a God who exists outside of this world. You know, I've met so many people um, at young adults or even just people around my age or even junior high kids. I get to meet with so many of them. They, they think it's going to be this relationship that's going to bring them some type of satisfaction and joy. They think it's going to be this, this occupation, this vocation, this job that's now going to bring them some self of gratification. And they're, they're always looking to something else to bring them a sense of worth and value. And God's going, it, was the cross not enough? Was the cross not enough? Did, did I not show you that you were valuable, that you were the apple of my In this story, it uses the phrase, the apple of my eye. And that's what, he, that's what Hosea says back to Gomer. And that's metaphoric of what Jesus is saying to you and I. And, and it's more than that. He's saying you were the maiden of my eye. And that's an incredibly intense phrase. It means this, that when you get so close to somebody that you see your reflection in their eye, you are the maiden of their eye. God is saying you are the only thing he's focused on. That's how much he cherishes you. That's what the maiden of his eye means. When you meet Jesus, the desires of your heart are met. You know, last time I, I, I gave the example of there being three types of people in the world when I was sharing my story. The first is a Christian. You understand the gospel and, and, and you've received Jesus um, as your Lord and Savior. The second type is the atheist or the agnostic, and I'm excited you're here. In fact, come back next week. We have a, we have a guide just for you. And then the third person was the person who believes they are close to God, yet they're really distant from him. The person who thinks they have a really tight relationship, really strong relationship with God, but really they are distant. They choose other things than their relationship with God time and time again. I want to focus on the second and the third type of person as we end tonight. To the atheist or the agnostic, I'm sure you have good reasons on why you don't believe in God. And I would love to get to know you and, and hear, hear some of those reasons. I just want you to know that there's a God who unconditionally loves you and has bought your freedom from slavery to sin. To the person who believes they have a good relationship with God, but they don't. I'm most passionate about this category of person because for most of my life, I was here. I thought I had a strong relationship with Christ, but I chose everything before him. I challenge you to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus your savior and Lord? I'm in a rooted group, and that was a question that we were talking about this last week. It's easy to make Jesus the savior of your life. We all want to be saved from sin and its punishment. But what's difficult is for him to be the Lord of your life. In this um, book, Hosea, there is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Hosea 13.6. It says this, when I fed them, and this is speaking from God, when I fed them, they became proud. 
And when they became proud, they became satisfied and they forgot about me. Let me say it again. When I fed them, they became proud. And when they became proud, they became satisfied. And then they forgot about me. You know, I don't know if this message is for anyone other than me in this room. <laughs> so thanks for hanging out with me. I feel like I just so often get distracted from what's really important. The very first thing that's, to be honest with you, that falls off my plate and off my schedule when things get when things are going the way they should be going, when things are going well, is my relationship with God, my prayer time, my devotional time, my Bible reading. You know, I'm a pastor. I work at this church. But to be honest with you, like I can use the Bible as a textbook. I can use the Bible just to come up here and spew out and give you something to think about. But I don't have to really think about it because I'm up here and saying it, which is garbage. But You know, I guess tonight what I... I want to get across to you is I think that God is inviting you to understand that he loves you. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you can do. Like our love. Our love is pretty conditional. But because of who he is. We'll end on this. You were not defined by your mistakes. You're defined by our God. And he calls you beloved. And he searches after you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. God, I thank you, Lord, that you love us when we're unlovable. Lord, I ask, God, that you open up the eyes of the hearts of the people in this room, Lord God, that are stiff-arming you, that choose not to believe in you, that choose not to accept who you are. I pray for the other type of person who thinks they are close to you, but they are really distant. I ask that you convict them. I pray, Lord, that you teach us what it means to make you the Lord of our lives, not just the Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.